Let's pray and get ourselves started. Our great God, we just thank you for the opportunity to open your word together, even through this medium. And we just ask you to bless and uh, make our time fruitful as we look at the word. And Lord, uh, there's so much here that we have to have deeply planted in our hearts. So we ask for you to do that and help us to be wise and to have a perspective that lines up completely with your word. In Christ's name, amen. All right, so um, our subject this morning is returning to Paul's theme of effective service for Christ through a unified church body. Heartfelt unity. That's essential for a church to function as it should. Last week we took kind of a theological detour uh, because, well, Paul did it. So we're just following his own detour. But he really couldn't talk about the humility of Christ without talking about the exaltation of Jesus and the future universal acknowledgement of his lordship. So that's a theme he just couldn't pass over, and we certainly weren't going to pass over it. It's too wonderful. So that whole section from Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 through verse 11 is extraordinary in the richness of its theology and the clarity and the beauty of its language. There's incredible gems like that that appear in the epistles, especially Paul's epistles, just the striking and memorable language that just enhances his great themes. One commentator said, uh, even in dealing with matters most delicate, distressing, and distasteful, he is able to state truth in such striking beauty as to make it appear like a precious jewel embedded in a clod of earth. And he's so right. Um, Great, memorable passages flow out of discussions on things like humility and unity in the church, which should be pretty simple topics. But Jesus, as our example, just elevates the most simple and basic ideas. He's our great example. So now we're going to return to that matter, these matters that are delicate and distressing and distasteful, a lack of unity in the body of Christ in the church at Philippi. So there was tension, and we don't know a lot of details about it, but Paul's addressing it, and it's good that we don't know details, so we can apply this broadly to all kinds of dissension and trouble in the church. And I think we can discern from the text today that there were some bad attitudes um, going on there as well, which is not good. Churches um, have been sidelined and even destroyed by unchristlike attitudes of church members or attenders, even leaders sometimes often leaders. I was just praying for a church this week that a friend of mine attends, which was torn by dissension and strife. And it started among the leadership, and it kind of fed down among the people as the leaders sought to break off people into their little parties and things like that. And church discipline was in the works. And then I just found out, instead of war, they all met together and they prayed together, and they actually resolved a lot of things. They changed their attitudes. They had a Philippians 2 perspective, all parties, and now it really looks like they're working toward unity. There's still some issues there, but just to hear people uh, respond like that in the midst of strife that's been so spread out that parties have actually formed against each other and church discipline was in the works and all of that, that's just beautiful to hear that. So I was uh, stunned because it sounded so bad, but you know when everyone makes a real effort to live what Paul says here in this chapter, miracles actually do happen. Humility softens the heart and it opens the ears. It helps people listen. Bad attitudes are just so destructive and they just can't go on. So Philippi Bible Church was a good church, but there were definitely cracks in the foundation. 
Paul got a report that people could not get along in the Lord's work, and those cracks just have to be addressed because too often, if they're left to themselves, people go on in ministry without unity. They just keep doing what they were doing, but they've got this fractured church, and the work suffers greatly without them even realizing it. You know, they don't even know what's going on, or they kind of uh, sweep all that under the rug, and there's just all this tension going on. And Of course, what Paul is striving for here in our text is to get them and us uh, to address ourselves to these kinds of matters so that they don't continue. Um, and we certainly need to be open to correction if we are becoming the problem. If we govern our hearts with God's help and be open to correction when our attitudes turn sour, then God can do really wonderful things. Pastor James Smith wrote generations ago, he wrote, The benefit arising from peace, unity, and brotherly love is incalculable. Wherever these reign, there the text is fulfilled. The fruit-producing dew descends, and the blessing, even life forevermore, is commanded. Sinners are converted, believers are quickened, and the whole body is favored with lively hopes, vigorous faith, and spiritual joys. Yeah, he's got it. That's it. Unity, peace, and love make all the difference in how a church functions and whether or not it's fulfilling God's great purposes. So in Paul's challenge to be unified and have a church family in harmony, he gives us a direct exhortation and a command and an example. And the exhortation, we started all the way back in verse 1 of chapter 2. I'm just going to kind of work back through that and then we'll move forward. So chapter 2, verse 1, Therefore, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion... Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. That's his exhortation. And that's followed by a command in verse 3. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. And that command is followed by the greatest of all examples, of course, in verse 5. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So exhortation, the command, and the example. That's challenging stuff. But Paul's not done yet. So listen, in, in my experience, I mean, one thing I've learned in life, and I think most people learn, over, hopefully over time, is that perspective counts for a lot in how you conduct yourself. How you see things is a change agent in your own heart and in your own attitudes. So, so discern Paul's words um, by grasping how we should view ourselves as part of a larger body and our role in the world as a Christian. Do you want to be godly and serve your king well? Then you've got to have the right perspective. So, today, picking up at verse 12 of Philippians chapter 2, Paul says, So then, my beloved, 
just as you have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So, first of all, he really compliments them in verse 12. They've always been very responsive to Paul when he was with them. They always had obeyed. They listened to him. They didn't chafe under the authority of their shepherds. They examined themselves, and they did what was right. Wonderful saints of God, these Philippians. Even better, they were just as obedient when Paul wasn't there. So if he wasn't there, they were doing what he said to do. And if issues came up, they would communicate with him. He would communicate back. But the, there is kind of a problem, and I, and I think that's what Paul wants to address here. They were too dependent on him. If he isn't there... Or if he's out of communication, like if he's locked in a prison somewhere and they can't contact him, they don't seem quite ready to solve new problems as they arise, like this particular problem. Uh, if there was a unity problem, they really shouldn't need Paul to come and fix it. Not They've been Christians for a long time, many years now. They've got a mature church and they're godly people. They really should be able to solve that problem and think about these things that Paul's sharing now on their own. They shouldn't need a word from him. So uh, that's kind of, uh, I think, where he's leading. It's time for them to grow up. And it's a serious business growing up. It takes a lot of work. So that's what he talks about. So Paul uses some really interesting variations on the word work here. The Greek word is energos. Guess what word we get from that? Energy, right? Energy. So that shows up in English all the time. So in verse 12, he says, work out. That's a form of this word. It's got another Greek preposition stuck on the front of it. Work out your salvation. Now, before we go any further, uh, it is true that some cultists and aberrant forms of Christianity love this phrase, work out your salvation, and they use it to teach salvation by works. Paul would probably rather throw himself off a bridge than say that, because that's so contrary to everything he taught. Salvation is by God's grace, through faith, period. And it's so clear, I don't even want to take time with it, except just to point two texts out to you, and then that sort of will solve that, and then we move on with what the actual meaning here is. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. If you just take Philippians and flip a couple pages over, you're in Ephesians. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one can boast. And then Titus 3, 5. He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, being justified by grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Salvation is by God's grace, and it is activated in our lives by faith only. Works have nothing to do with it. And he specifically says, not as a result of works. So, work out your salvation means to move forward in it. Apply it. Live it. The, the verb is present tense, which in Greek implies continuous action. This is something you're always supposed to be doing. That's what the grammar suggests. And it's an ongoing process. So, becoming saved, passing from death to life... That happens once. That's not an ongoing thing. That happens at a moment in time. But working out your salvation, that is a lifelong change. 
it's a it's something that we do continuously. You could think of it sort of like a math problem. You know, you get one of these gnarly math problems, and I'm horrible at math, so they're really gnarly for me. But you got to work it out. I mean, that's it's even the language you use. You got to work it out until you get to this result, right? So you're working out your salvation. You're you're doing it. You're applying yourself to it. You're expressing it. Uh, William Hendrickson, I think, really captured Paul's expression working out really well. He said, they must now work out their own salvation. That is, they must work it out apart from the assistance of Paul. Yes, they must work it out. That is, carry it to its conclusion. Thoroughly digest it and apply it to day-to-day living. They must strive to produce in their lives all the fruit of the Spirit. The entire long list enumerated in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. They must aim at nothing less than spiritual and moral perfection. Just so. He's right. So that's to be done, Paul says, with fear and trembling. That doesn't mean a cowering fear. He's talking about this passion to please God. Have you ever had a job or an assignment where you had a really important task to complete and it was really important that it be done well? Well, if you're a person of any kind of character, you want to do that. You want to do it well. And you, there's a certain fear of not completing it on time or not doing a good enough job to please whoever gave you that particular thing. It's got to be done, and you want to do it right. You know, when I'm given a task like that, I want it right. I want to make sure I did it that. So that's the kind of fear and trembling we're talking about. It's a motivational fear and trembling. It's important that we do it right. So we serve a great king. One to whom we owe our very lives. Uh, everything, really. And he's given us this task. And we should have this passion, this fear of not doing it right, of moving forward for him, just because we love him. The task is to become like his son. Romans 8.29 says God's purpose is that we become conformed to the image of his son. That's a really big part of our task. Does that sound like work? It does to me. Because I'm a long way from that. To become like Christ, that's not a small task. That's an ongoing, continuous, big task. And we should fear failing in that task. Not because we'll be condemned by failing, but because pursuing this great work pleases God. And that's what we want to do. We want to please God. It, it matters. And we should love to please Him as He is infinitely worthy of being pleased, right? I mean... Who shouldn't please God? We should all have that as our primary goal in life. So we need to work it out with diligence. And you know what? When you work out your salvation, when you grow in grace, shaping your perspective, fighting against your sin, learning love and humility, you have a very powerful friend working with you and in you. Verse 13. For it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So God is supplying energy, if you will, um, personally doing that. He's working in you for his great purposes, his will, his good pleasure. So you're absolutely not on your own in this endeavor. It may feel like you're alone sometimes, but that's usually when you mentally have the wrong perspective and are carrying the burden yourself. That's not what you're supposed to do. You're to work with God. He's right there with you, working in you. He's very present, and you need to 
cooperate with him, bring him in, lean on him, trust in him, uh, ask for his help and his power, and he's right there with you. That's the great truth of it, and you need to have that perspective, that idea, that concept in mind that God is present in you and with you to do this great work, to work out your salvation, to be more and more like Christ. So to work out your salvation, to move it towards completion, there's a really great need to stay close to the Lord, to stay close to him. Jesus himself, I often think about this, he spent many hours in prayer. Well, hey, he's God's son. Why doesn't he just like move through life without needing all of that kind of stuff? Because he was a human being. And he had to relate to the Father as a human being. That was part of his emptying of himself. Paul talks about in, um, earlier in the chapter. So he had to pray hours and hours. And he thought about Scripture a lot. He studied it. He learned it. He used it. He meditated on it. He did it perfectly. And to be conformed to his image, we should struggle with those same things. Lots of prayer. Uh, lots of time in the Word, meditating on the Word of God, including it, bringing it in. So prayer and the Word, those are Christian virtues that have to be practiced, um, the, taking the time to do those things, to think through those things. And as we do that, God works in us the qualities and the gifts He wants to see in us. Now, you should understand that God is not the only one working. Romans chapter 7, verse 5, Paul talks about what was working in us before we came to Christ, before God took up residence within us. He says, while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. There's a lot there in that little phrase, Romans 7, 5, that little verse there. Sinful passions, these desires, they're working in us. So the law of God, if you knew it before you came to Christ, it made our sin even worse because if all we have working in us is sinful passion, then when we are shown the law of God, we rebel against it. We break it even more. Even if we're very religious, sinful passions can make us rebellious in a, in a different sort of way. So some people are not religious at, at all or just very perfunctory, just show up and um, they just love their sinful passions and they're involved in them. And when they see the law, it makes them want to do it even more. But there's a, there's a very religious person who is also ruled by sinful passions, who doesn't know God. And they turn to another method, which would be self-righteousness. So the humility part is gone. The self-examination is gone. They magnify other people's sins and they minimize their own sins. They, they never look at their own heart first. They don't think of themselves as the chief of sinners. They know everybody else is much worse than they are. So that's another whole perspective that people can have. It's the Pharisaical attitude, being like a Pharisee. And, and if we're like that, we're not any better off. We're not doing any better than the wild pagan acting out all of, on all of his sinful impulses. That's another kind of sinful passion that works in us before we come to know Christ, a, a form of self-righteousness. So some people are wired that way. So in that person's heart, they really believe they're better than others. So Paul's describing sinful passions as working. They are shaping our desires and our affections, and they are directing our will and pushing us to choose and 
certain directions. And there's only one cure that I know of for sinful passions, whether they are blatant sinning or being self-righteous. And that cure is called the new birth. Jesus said, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You must be born again. So without the new birth and the power that comes from it and the change that God creates in us, the ability and the energy supplied by the Holy Spirit in us, we have no hope without that. That's the key. That's got to be there. But when you have that, when you turn to Christ, repent of your sins and receive him, the Holy Spirit does take up residence in us. Christ is in us. And then real substantive change becomes possible, hopefully normal, especially if we labor with God to work out our salvation the way Jesus did through prayer and the word and, and maturing, growing in Christian virtues. People might be able to modify their behavior without the new birth, but they cannot replace sinful passions or self-righteousness without the new birth. And just as the sinful passions shape our affections and desires and direct our will, well, the Holy Spirit, when he takes up residence in us, shapes our desires and our affections and redirects our will. So he does that, and he's working with us. So if you're a Christian, you know that your desires have already changed, right? Your affections have changed. You love God, something you didn't do before. You actually want to please him, which was not a priority before. You're whole orientation of life is different. God becomes first. That in itself is God working. That's the transformation that comes with the new birth. But you might be thinking, yeah, but, you know, I do love God and I do desire to please him, but the sinful passions, they're still around. I mean, sometimes they rouse themselves and I have to deal with them. Well, you don't have to tell me about that. I know all about that because we all experience that. That's the way it's going to be. It's going to be true until Jesus comes or until we die. Because only then will our being be made perf perfect. Right? We are still, as the Bible says, in the flesh. We still live in our flesh. That hasn't been transformed yet. Galatians 5.17, Paul says, For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. There's a war going on in us. So we have these sinful motions, passions, desires, and we have the Holy Spirit working grace and mercy and love and obedience and all these good things, and they're opposed to each other. There's a fight going on. It, 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 this, the flesh actively desires to oppose the Spirit, so this battle is engaged. Before the new birth, there was, really wasn't a battle. Uh, we were slaves of sin, but after the new birth, the battle is on, and we've got to fight it. We're not slaves anymore. We can fight, and we must work to bring victory over our sinful desires, our fleshly desires. So when it comes to issues like unity in the body of Christ, it is the flesh that is proud and can't take the lowly place and has to complain or argue about everything. It's the flesh that finds pleasure in causing strife and trying to win out over other people or exalt self. It's the flesh that wants to feed our baser desires, even against the commandments of God. So we all struggle with that. We all have to fight that. We have to grow 
in Christ through that. We have to cultivate these Christian virtues. And humility, that Paul is the theme of this chapter, that's the first one we have to really get nailed down because everything's going to flow out of that humility. Then from that place, we can resist and reject these impulses or workings of the flesh that are in us. One way we do that is by saying no. We have to say no to those impulses. As for unity, Paul gives this great place to start in verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Did you catch that? All things. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. So complaining, murmuring, uh, being argumentative, that's what's in view here. Even complaining under your breath, you have to say no to that part of yourself that is inclined to do that. It's a fleshly attitude. And even if you say it under your breath, God hears. He hears that. So it's a, it's a common sin, but common doesn't mean it's not serious, right? So you have to say no to those impulses. Some wise soul once said, if Christians spend as much time praying as grumbling, they would soon have nothing to grumble about. I think that's true. I think that's true. Now, that doesn't mean keep your mouth shut. Um, it might mean keep your mouth shut, but it doesn't have to mean keep your mouth shut. Keep your mouth shut and repent of sinful passions, complaining and being argumentative. But questions and constructive ideas and evaluations that are humbly brought to others, that's okay. We encourage that. We don't want you not to do that. Just don't do it with grumbling and disputing, you know. There's a fine line there sometimes. You have to be really careful. But genuine concern and questions are always welcome. Uh, certainly in our church they are. But foremost in our minds when we come to others, um, leaders or friends or whatever, is the desire for unity in the spirit, being of one mind, and maintaining the same love. That's got to be there. And that should be what's filling us and working out in us uh, as we approach things we have questions about or disagreements we might have or concerns that we might have that we feel like need to be addressed. So we talked about perspective. So here's the right perspective. God rules. He's in charge of the universe. And he doesn't make mistakes. So don't grumble against him ever. In troublesome times, we, we look for opportunities to learn lessons instead of grumble. We, we find ways to serve him in trouble instead of complain to him. And grumbling is just fault-finding. That's all it is. It, grumbling is fault-finding, and God has no faults. So you know it's wrong to grumble against him. That's, it's a lot of presumption in grumbling. You're kind of assuming bad motives on the part of other people or incompetence um, with people. And some people even grumble that way with God. What, what, you're, you don't have control of this. I, I don't see that. What are you doing? You know. Now, humans... Not God, but humans might have bad motives. They might. Are humans ever incompetent? Yeah, yeah, pretty often, right? That happens. But grumblers, they assume that. They assume bad motives, and they assume incompetence, and they're fault-finding and blaming others for whatever is wrong or seems wrong to them. And it's sort of a mindset. It's a perspective they have. There's nothing Christ-like about that. Uh, his humility is missing in that. And we're supposed to be conformed to the Son of God. And he was a humble, gentle person. So we need to learn holy contentment 
rooted in love and humility. One of my favorite pastors, long dead, uh, spoke about developing contentment in a way which I just think is really needed in our time, especially as we're raising kids in this culture that we live in. Contentment's a lost virtue. And, and as believers, we shine brightly in a dark world if we are content. We have to exhibit that. Anyway, here's J.R. Miller on contentment. He says, anything good in life must become a habit before it is a permanent part of our character. Character is simply the sum of our habits. If we train ourselves to do right over and over and over, the right thing becomes, at length, a habit. Similarly, is it with the doing of wrong things. If we habitually indulge an appetite, we become, at last, its slave. If we begin in youth to grumble and find fault and be discontented with our lot in life, by and by we shall form a habit of discontentment. If, on the other hand, we learn in youth to accept whatever comes with patience and quiet cheerfulness, to be easily satisfied, and when there are rough places and hard experiences, to submit to them with joy and confidence, we shall form a habit of being contented. A fixed habit of being contented is cont contentment. So it appears that contentment cannot be learned in a day, but in many days and years. The best time to begin forming good habits is in youth. It is never too early to begin. Apply this truth to contentment. We believe we ought to be contented that discontent is not beautiful, that it mars and disfigures character, that it makes life miserable, and that it is really sinful against God. There's so much wisdom there. Enormous wisdom there for everybody. But of all people, Christians should be living that out because we believe in a good God, a sovereign God who is good. So there's no reason to be discontent with him. He's a father to his people and he always has our best in mind even if we don't get what that best is during trials or difficulties. Sometimes it's just to build character in us. So our theology should teach us contentment even in great trials, but it is so much easier when we are not suddenly grasping to find contentment, but instead we've cultivated a habit of mind that is content. That's what J.R. Miller is trying to say there. Don't you think Christians trained in the habit of contentment would stand out in our world? Wouldn't we be different? Wouldn't we be lights shining? The world needs to see contentment. In us, A grumbling Christian should be a contradiction in terms. In fact, it was Charles Spurgeon who said, fighting sheep are strange animals, and fighting Christians are self-evident contradictions. Think about that. Fighting Christians are self-evident contradictions. If you carry the name of Christ, you shouldn't be a fighter. Not in that way. Let's expand a bit on the importance of being different from the world and being a light through true humility and contentment. I said that this is a notable quality and it's a, it's a way of being that really makes our Savior worth paying attention to. It draws attention to him. Your life has to shine with virtues appropriate to what you say you believe. And that's really Paul's point in verse 15. He says, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God, 
above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world. What is a Christian in the world? Light. That's our calling. So verse 15 begins with so that, so that, and every time you see that, it's a, it's a purpose clause. It's giving the reason for doing all things without grumbling and being argumentative. And it's to prove ourselves blameless and innocent. People who avoid grumbling and strife, they really stand out in a quiet way, in a wonderful way. And people do notice that. Petty squabbles and antagonism and little enemies fighting in little worlds are, are so common in human endeavors. I mean, competition for power, I've seen it in, in clubs, in committees, in charities, in schools, really any organization where there's more than one person. Those kind of things tend to happen. And it's usually about power and influence, but some people just aren't happy without tearing other people down. Whether they want power or not, they just like being troublemakers. They like strife. Whoever that is, it should not be a follower of Jesus Christ because that's so unlike him. And it happens in churches too and too often. Though I have to say, we have been really blessed in our church with excellent role models so it doesn't happen very often at Acton Faith Bible Church. But, the, but Philippi Bible Church it was starting to show up, and that's why Paul's talking about it. Christians are light bearers, he says in verse 15. We're supposed to shine, not for honors that accrue to us, but as Jesus said, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So Christian people should see you as contented, gentle, gracious, and even-keeled. You know what that means? When a ship's set right, its keel is even, right? You're not leaning over here, leaning over there. Dependable, not given to extremes, not rattled easily, because you're supposed to worship a God who's in control and a God who is gracious and good and we're to be like him. So first Paul says, do all things without grumbling or disputing, but that's not all. Then verse 16 explains why this is so important. Holding fast the word of life. Now Greek scholars disagree about verse 16. There's really two legitimate ways to translate it and think about it. Both are good, so it really doesn't matter which way you want to go. But it can be properly translated. It can be properly trans translated, holding forth the word of life which would be like proclaiming the gospel, right? Holding it out to other people. And that flows pretty nicely with the idea of being a light in a crooked and perverse generation. We live in a very perverse world. We, we get used to it, because like the frog in the kettle, you know, he doesn't realize he's being boiled, if that's even a real thing, but uh, the, the analogy is valid, though. Um, we get used to the perversion and the crookedness of the world, but it's an incredibly perverse and crooked world. And we are supposed to be lights in that world, right? So holding forth the word of life is holding forth Christ and the gospel in a different way. Now, the New American Standard Bible, which I have, translates it holding fast the word of life, which would mean making God's word central in our lives, which we should definitely do. That would, be, uh, that would go with the idea of working out our salvation, which is a major theme in Scripture as well. In fact, the Bible 
being essential for our Christian growth, Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, that's just the next book over there, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. So it might have that meaning. Both ideas are possible. Both ideas are equally true. Um, my guess is it's, it's probably the holding forth idea. That I think that's more likely because of just the phrase word of life. That seems to be the idea of holding forth the word of life to people. The Apostle John actually uses that phrase word of life of Jesus in 1 John chapter 1, verse 1. That's how he presents him right away. He is the word of life. But, and, but that would fit with this too, broadly understood as the word that leads to life, Christ being the way of life, the message about Jesus, and the means of reconciliation which he accomplished to reconcile us to God and bring us eternal life. So it might be referring to that. The world needs us very much, not us as in our egos, but us as redeemed sinners who have experienced and received the word of life and how it's changed us and that message of reconciliation which we can offer to other people, that people can be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. That is holding forth the word of life. And if we do that, Paul says, hold forth the word of life, we will be so much more delighted when we stand before Jesus on the great day. Verse 16, holding fast the word of life so that, purpose clause, in the day of Christ, I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain, nor toil in vain. So Paul's purpose is to make true disciples of Jesus, not fill churches with bodies. Um, we so misread what successful ministry is in our culture, but that's the subject for another day. But um, simply put, we don't need more churchgoers. We need more light in the darkness. We need to hold forth the word of life in our conduct and in what we offer to people. So if the Philippians do that, Paul says, even if he ends up losing his case before the emperor and loses his life, he's going to rejoice. Verse 17, even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice. And I share my joy with you all. And you too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. That's, there's that theme of joy poking itself back in our next Philippians section here. It's everywhere in this letter, joy and rejoicing. He will rejoice and they will rejoice because both Paul and the Philippians will all have fulfilled their great purpose and they will all hear a good word from the Lord on that day about having lived the way he wanted them to live and being true lights in the world by being humble and gracious and full of compassion and seeking unity in the body of Christ. There's, there's no loss if we serve Christ faithfully, there's only gain. That's sort of the point there. That was Paul's theme in chapter 1, verse 21 of Philippians, right? To live is Christ, to die is gain. So light the world with Jesus Christ. And this is best done with Christ-like humility, working out our salvation with this singular fear of failing to do what God had called us to do. That should be the driving fear. Oh my goodness, I'm not serving the Lord as he wants. I'm going to fix that. I'm going to work with him to change that in my life. The writer of Hebrews said of Jesus, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So we too live in anticipation of the joy set before us, the joy of hearing a good word from the Lord 
on that great day because we took these things seriously and we applied them to our lives and we, we tried to be the best lights we could in the world, in the world of darkness, in a crooked and perverse generation. That's the message of this part of Scripture. And, and then following this, Paul's going to give us some other examples, more human examples from real life. So let's pray. Our Father, always keep us mindful of our attitudes, our perspective. Help us to attain to humility of mind. Let us see your sovereign hand in all of our circumstances. You, you amaze us and let that shape us. You, you rule over all things. Let us obey with contentment your commandments. Let our only fear be failing to work out the salvation that you freely gave to us. Conform us to your Son in his humility and his love as he served you. We are your servants and seek to do your will. So keep us, work in us, Father. Grow us as we seek to please you. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. That's our message for today. God bless you. We hope you have opportunities to talk about this with some other people and really do some self-examination and continue to grow in grace in Christ. We'll see you next time.